Welcome to Useful Outsiders, brought to you by the Council for International Development. This episode was recorded at the Council for International Development's Annual Conference 2023 on the 21st of September in Wellington, New Zealand. In the episode, Rachel Mason Nunn, Director at Mandela Partners and founder of Goodwill Hunters Podcast, speaks with Emilini Siali Elolahia, Executive Director of the Pacific Islands Association for Non-Governmental Organisations, Piango. They discuss the topic of localisation and partnerships in the Pacific, with Siali sharing the latest developments from Piango and Pacific Partners. Welcome, Siali. Hi. <laughs> Malolele, everyone. Malolele. It's quite bright, so it's hard to see everyone's faces, but um, bear with us while we adjust to that. Um, Siale, I think it would be great if you could start um, by telling us a bit about your work, and I know you've got a brief presentation prepared, and then we will get into some interesting questions. Okay. Emeline Sialilola here. I'm from Tonga. Uh, I moved to work in Fiji in 2018 uh, because my two children were getting time to go to USP. So I thought that as a private student, I might uh, need to get established in Fiji and see how it's cheaper to bring the children there. And then COVID uh, hit Fiji, west of our Pacific countries, uh, three waves, first Delta something that was uh, got there. I think we had three different cyclones uh, and the Fijian blamed that all on me. But that was uh, quite the journey that I had in terms of my res- uh, responsibility as the executive director of the Pacific Islands Association of NGOs. But here I am, still surviving. <laughs> it's really good to be here. Thank you, Siale. And as Siale said there, and just to reaffirm her fabulous bio, Siale is Executive Director of Piango, and I'm sure that everyone in this room is quite familiar with Piango, and Siale will talk a bit more about them in a moment. But Siale, um, in her capacity as Executive Director, represents the interests of Pacific civil society at a range of international and regional fora. on topics like human rights, institutional strengthening, governance, and and just generally safeguarding the interests of Pacific people. So before we get into any questions, I think you've got some slides prepared. I'll hand over to you. Okay, because in the actual program, I was expecting to uh, speak about the geopolitics in the region. But that has been covered by the Professor Ratuva. So as we call it in the Pacific, the Bush uh, professor like me, we then move to something else uh, before I, I ruin the whole work that uh, my colleagues have actually shared earlier today. So I thought I'd just share the, the, the work that we have been involved in in the 2050 strategy. Hands up those that has actually heard or read or, yeah, about the 2050 strategy. It's, it's significant because it's the priority setting for our region. And if you are interested to work in our region, in the Pacific, then you better learn how this piece of document is being organized and, and arranged. When we get into part of this process, 
we were in, so the leaders in 2019 in their meeting in Tuvalu approved the concept of having a 2050 strategy and directed the forum secretariat uh, to bring people to start designing. Uh, we were invited as regional civil society to come to the forum and then they present. When they were presenting, we can see quite clearly that it's, uh, it's dominated by a national system uh, and national government. There was no clear pathway of uh, anything that civil society at the regional level has anything to play in this. Uh, but, but then it's a, it's a priority setting for the region. So about eight of us in the room, we just took up and go. Well, we had their lunch first before we left, <laughs> which was quite good. And then they call us back again. So the forum official committee, they are the one that can uh, set the, the, the priorities. And I think Benedict last night was talking about that. Eh? They set the priorities for the, the agenda, for the leaders meeting. And within that, uh, what we showed, fork, they have an informal committee they set up to really look into the strategy, 2050 strategy. So when they invited civil society to be part of the committee, it was another informal committee. So we were in the informal of the informal of the four committee. Yeah? They said, okay, get two people. Then we got to civil society. Then we negotiated again. Because it's always last minute, we want to have an alternate. So we have now four people. And so this is how our journey with this uh, uh, 2050 strategy. What I find interesting in this uh, process, that our civil society bring a different diverse opinion and reflections. Um, and oftentimes we think of the sector still around charities, still around volunteerism. I think we need to change the way we look into our sector. We are professional, yeah, we are experts. Even though we did not have, you know, we don't have a piece of paper, or you know, professor, or, but our experience and our understanding um, of what we do in the community we serve should count for something. So this is the 2050 strategy. The leaders come up with this vision. This has already been approved in last year in Fiji, and you can see it's quite simple, yeah, and as things that are simple and look good on paper oftentimes is uh, not gonna always work. Eh? So they have uh, like a different uh, strategy pathway, political commitments, but the most important is the thematic areas. So there are seven thematic areas. These are the priorities of our region. Political leadership and regionalism, and I think this is why everyone wanted to know how the geopolitics play out. People-centered development, peace and security, resource and economic development, climate change and disaster, ocean and natural environment, and then we have technology and connectivity. Again, this is just the same kind of different format of where the seven priorities for our region. So now is the phase where we move into develop the implementation plan. We thought that they will continue to engage us you know, directly as we go from the plan and then now the implementation plan. No, they don't like us that much. They have to have a call for expression of interest because they had managed to cluster the seven priority areas into four, which you can see there. 
So they merge political leadership and regionalism and peace and security. Uh, and you can see that the lead there is actually the PIFs and the PIDP. People stand, like, uh, stand on its own. And then cluster three, they combine ocean, environment, climate change, and disaster. And you can already tell the, you know, the complexity of the process. And then everything goes into resource and economic development, technology, and, con and connectivity. So they, they expressed a call for expression of interest for civil society to apply to be part of what they call MSEC, which stands for multi-stakeholder expert group. The whole of December, whole of January, 0.00% applied, except me, yeah? Because I'm smart. <laughs> I just applied, and because I was the only one from civil society, they said, can you please nominate people? So I start nominating the same group that has started this process, and then we have another four that become alternate. And so that has been how we got engaged. It's by fluke, I think, but nonetheless, we are there. And so th this has been the process that has been, it's the, the implementation plan is almost finished, uh, and it's going to be put forward to the leaders meeting on the 6th to the 10th of uh, December, of, of November, sorry. So when they approved the, the 2050 strategy last year, the leaders say there are two more work to be done to complete the implementation plan, and the other one is the review of the regional architecture. A lot of the work that I'm involved in is towards the regional architecture. Why? Because that will give a formal mechanisms that will allow for civil society not to be called up yesterday for the meeting you know, in the morning, but it would have a formal mechanisms that we can engage, genuinely engage. But before they, they do it, it's already, we can already tell from this arrangement where they see you know, the engaging of civil society. Just to give you a, a, a heads up on how the implementation plan looks like. So you have the level of ambitions at the top, then you have the different goals, and then they separate people's outcome and systems. I think that is a good arrangement. And one of that was because a lot of our civil society were keep on questioning how they do things and keep on saying, where do we place people? Yeah? And through that, then they managed to separate the two level of outcomes. I don't want to go into details, but just to give you a hint of where that's the kind of language and yeah? And, and, and you can also see they already start looking in what are the collective actions. Peace and security, people-centered. When they put a, a civil society representative, then we lead in some of these groups. So Piango was actually working uh, representing civil society, alternate the Pacific Disability Forum in the people-centered development. Then we have the climate change and disaster, when they were developing all this, they couldn't go all the way to 2050. And they decided they can only do the first 10 years. Yeah? Well, it just shows that us in the Pacific, we can't think that far, eh? And technology and connectivity. Means of implementation. This is something that has never been discussed in the many meetings that I attended, uh, but it's here because one of the things that we always be mindful that this piece of paper would be used to get, you know, like a selling 
resource mobilization. And in the, in the beginning of the conversation around the 2050 strategy, it was clear that they targeted country to be driven by government from the country level. When we started to see the implementation, crop agencies were all over the place. And so we started to be worried and alert our members in country to start talking to their country, to their government. The money is gonna be sitting in the region, the way it's being framed. So this is, this is a whole lot of work, yeah? So if MFET is here, you can start thinking of funding me to do this kind of work, eh? The, 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 the monitoring and the progress of this is important because what we find that for civil society, there, there was no clear other than thinking about implementation. But civil society, we have two key important roles. One is that we have a political voice, and this is why they, most people don't like us because of that role that we play. And the other one is that we implement program yeah, to complement the role of government uh, because they can't do everything. But you can see here uh, the blue box to my left. You go, you go sit down. The way that they have named civil society is NSA. My colleagues here from the EU, that's how they call civil society. Uh, but it's a combination of civil society and private sector. And we have not even talked about the regional architecture. But we started to already see ourselves being placed some of these boxes. Yeah? And they're expecting us to report back to them. Where did they ever get the idea that we're gonna be reporting to them? But that's the expectation. For those of us that we are willing to be part of this and partner to deliver on the 2050 strategy, we better front up and be ready that this is the expectation. Okay, here's the beautiful map of Piango being present in the Pacific. We work in 24 countries and territories. Our members, uh, we're using, I said, now, 1980, uh, when the idea was being born, Port Vila, 1991, and then in Suva, 2004. So we are a 40-plus-year-old uh, organization. In the Constitution, in our Constitution, this is the work that we're supposed to be doing, facilitate communication. The important, the important point that I want to make here is that those of us that are doing coordination is important, but no one is investing in it. Somehow they think that the angel from heaven will come and get people to one place, send them home when they're ready. Yeah? It's an important piece of work, but it seems like that everybody don't want to put any money into that process. But much so for our informal sector, because no one wants to work with us until we organize ourselves. And how do we want to, how do we expect that civil society would be participating fully if we don't put resources into coordination. Now I'm fundraising as I go, thank you very much. <laughs> and our mission is to enable the Pacific Extended Family of NGO to effectively promote advanced interests and well-being of the Pacific people. And you can see that little diagram that I draw there that we have now moved to kind of give sense to what we do in terms of the public policies and priorities and the development of our goals has to be reflected on the well-being of our Pacific. And we also step in to do a bit of work around public finance management that the EU had funded through the UNDP to make sure that we follow the money, well, our own money, we follow our money, right? Because there is no guarantee that the policies will be implemented 
until there's money allocated in our budget for that. Yeah? And so this is where we wanted to make sure that this process represented the well-being of our Pacific people at the center of it. You know, as we grow up in the Pacific countries, uh, we have to learn uh, uh, memory verse, eh? Bible memory verse. This is the civil society Bible memory verse. If you don't know, you should know by now. In Busan, development effectiveness, all of our Pacific people are part of this. They had approved Busan partnership. Paragraph 22 speaks to acknowledge the civil society it's a development actors in our own right. And then we have also recognized that's our commitment, that we must implement practices that strengthen our own accountability. And Mark was talking earlier about the code. That's the kind of work that we, if we are to recognize that we are development actors in our own right, we also have to put into practice our own accountability. We can't go and tell government to be accountable, eh? When there's a lot of rubbish behind the eh? backyard. Again, this is the key role of civil society, our political voice, and our implementation. The role of our civil society members in countries is an umbrella. We provide the platform to make sure that implementations, NGOs that are implementing projects often find that their voices to change or complain are not being heard because it might mean that they will be losing their funding. So I'd be happy to speak on their behalf while they get the money to do the work and claim the credit sometimes, so that's okay. Yeah? But this is the key thing that we need to, to, to navigate you know, as our theme. How do we navigate ourselves in some of this? The other area that is also important to our work that we need common platform like this to be supported because oftentimes that we see human rights approach, base approach, are often not being part of the implementation of some of the projects. So we need a group to keep reminding our government that these are a basic human rights, that everyone has the right to development. We have four pillars. Okay, this is gonna be my last slide, because I think uh, the podcast, which I have not done before, is need to be going ahead. We had come up with this idea that we had enough about our leaders failing to deliver a lot of the work for our Pacific people, our politicians, our senior officials. Who is gonna make that change? Us. Amen to that, eh? And this is where the, the whole idea of this, that our vision for the next 10 years to have a united Pacific, strengthening the resilience and responsiveness of our kainga. Kainga is in, you know, most Polynesian means family for a peaceful and prosperous Vanua, which is the region. And we will do this by creating secure enabling environment for strong, effective, accountable, and adaptive institutions, linking people with policy to support inclusive representative, eh, common voice platform and structured mechanisms to influence positive change. And this is about also how we see ourselves being represented. Like for example, in Piango, we have seven board members two from each of our sub-region. Our board is from FSM, the North Pacific. We have to pay 10,000 to get her to come to meetings. It's highly maintenance when you think about representation in our board and our governance. But if we are serious about disability, young people, women, indigenous community, then we have to make sure that they're part of your governance committee. In the great mainstream Pacific identity, cultural practices and values, we value that. We bring into our conversations and our work the approaches that we had that make sure that it speaks to our Pacific cultural practices as our approach. To develop sustainable, equitable, and genuine 
Partnership for Resilient Development. So these are our four focus areas that are gonna be run with us as part of our 20 to 2030. And you can see the, the, the relationship that we had with the 2050 strategy. So this is going to be accompanying the 2050 strategy. How am I gonna fund it or how is it gonna, I don't know, but it's gonna be working somehow, I believe so. Because all we need to do is to make sure that we share our vision with people within our community and within our Pacific network to make that, that work. I'll stop there. Thank you. Who learned something new there about the important work Piango does? Yeah, lots of us. And lots of us were already pr probably have a, a working appreciation of the importance of Piango's great work in, in supporting civil society in, in the Pacific, but it was wonderful to hear more about that. Thank you. Um, we're going to dig into a few of those topics a bit more now. And Mark actually this morning touched on the importance of civic space and supporting journalism and media organisations in, in a context of contested civic space in the Pacific. And I want to start there with a statement, which is that politics are increasingly polarised and civic space, particularly for advocacy organisations, campaigning organisations like, like so many represented in this room, has been contested and clamped down on in our region increasingly in recent years. And NGOs play a critical role as social commentators speaking out against policies and practices that are, that are doing harm. And we need to protect that critical role that they play. So Siale, can I start by asking you, what are some of the topics that your members are most vocal on at the moment? And has their ability to speak out been compromised in recent years? I think when we talk about civic space, a lot of times we're just thinking about somewhere in Miramar or India or yeah, far, far away that you see tension, conflict that restricted people from participating in the public, public space. But I think in the Pacific it's much more softer but, but also uh, not visible. Because when we talk about civic, uh, civic space, the shrinking of civic space speaks to how our government, the receptions of critical views and opinion of civil society uh, that are often not uh, aligned to, to their thinking. If I could think of one example of the work that we do in the Pacific that makes the government shut down a lot of the work that we do, or even don't give permit to some of the demonstration that some of the young people wanted to, to put forward, was around deep sea mining. And deep sea mining is, is, is a, a complicated issue. In the Pacific, we have four countries, Cook Islands, Nauru, I'm not from Tonga, but Tonga is part of that too. Kiribati, did I mention Kiribati? Kiribati. And the way that it's work that you sponsor a country, uh, a, a company. So that company first, which right now they are from Canada, come to Tonga and register as a local company. And then the, then the government sponsor, like a state-owned company, to be registered in the International Seabed Authority <clears throat> to start exploring explorations for minerals, claiming that this is where the the materials, raw materials for renewable energy, for the solar panel, yeah? And, and so they had built the case to a point that 
our leaders feel like that they're going to be rich like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah? Whereas the, the, the industry, if it's going ahead, there's no other place, even Australia, there's no refinery for, the, for these minerals. Only China, we already see them packing up, getting ready for, for this uh, extractive industry to go ahead. So one of the things that we are also hoping that the 2050 strategy will allow us is to be able to bring this kind of conversation and have it with our leaders, as open as it should be. Because our ocean is a, is a totally different story. But the funny thing and the contradictions, and, and probably this is where the, another lower level of the geopolitics, is the fact that we're jumping up and arms in the Fukushima, you know, treated water to our ocean, but it's the same principle. But because the, the corporate capture associated with deep sea mining is so huge that we started to see that. Even in the, the self-determination is something that also that they don't like us to talk about. West Papua, Kanaki for New Caledonia, Mahenui, French Polynesia. But one of the things that we know that is common across those four countries, their natural resources yeah, are so rich that all the other countries want to hold on to them. Yeah. In the, in the absence of those are the, the violations of human rights. And the most, the set of all is that it's always our women and our children that are in the middle of it. They are being displaced, they are being abused, you know? And yet we, we couldn't find that kind of solidarity within our leaders in our Pacific to speak out on that. And this is one of the things that I felt like that is annoying. How can they not be able to make a stand and the sad thing is, this is the kind of message that we are sending our young people. Yeah? Because we keep on saying to our leaders, at least make a stand, make a position. Don't go you know, roaming around like you, oh, I don't know. We don't have, we have no, no position. We have not come up with one. What is the kind of message we are sending our children? It, it's, it's just that kind of level, I think, that this is where the, perhaps the geopolitics in a way that is related to us more than the academia and how they analyze the different power dynamics with the different countries, is how we are relating ourselves with how our, our leaders are leading us in the uncertain times. That really speaks to how we are teaching our children, teaching our children that we can't even make up our mind. We don't know. On, on situation that we know exactly where we should be going, but because there are specific interests in money, in the economic benefit without considering any other, the social economics or the you know, environment. That the, the sad thing is that if you continue in this kind of work exercise, you will harm one area. There's no boundary in our ocean. It will harm everything. But to make it worse, if the company, or if New Zealand, for example, in, in the company that work for Tonga, find that they, that they know that there's been harm, they can be able to take Tonga to court. Who is responsible? Tonga. Yeah? It's a story of liability. That I'm already, the only reason why I keep on um, advocating for this because I know that my grandchildren that are not yet born are already being in debt now before they're born. The other reasons of the debt, you know, they're so high that our countries are very, they're desperate to find any solutions in terms of 
But what I don't understand is that cut down the expenses yeah? and see how we did one uh, tech conference in Fiji. And amazing how technical it may be, IMF and ADB came and speak. After that, the community members of the Fiji Council of Social Services, they put up a statement. We are anticipating that the cost of food will rise. Please be mindful of how you spend your money. Man, I should have promoted that lady to be the Minister of uh, Finance in Fiji. Yeah? Very simple, but the message is clear. Yeah. Mm. I mean, so often civil society has to speak up and be the voice on issues that government won't talk about, as you say. And I think we need to acknowledge that often that happens in the same environment as growing distrust of government and perceptions of corruption and where, where government starts to lose their social contract and voters don't trust them anymore. It's civil society that has to speak up, as you say, on the issues that government is silent on. And I think that raises the point for me of, of I mean, the Corruption Perception Index, which recently launched New Zealand, second in the world. Well done. After Denmark and on par with Finland, Papua New Guinea fared the worst for the Pacific, ranking 130, and Fiji ranked 49, Vanuatu 260. And a lot of the countries sat around that area. How do you think this increase in perceived corruption contributes to a narrowing of civic space? One of the things that does immediately come to mind, if we, if we think that we are in a region and regionalism is driving the work that we do, why is it hard for New Zealand to say to Tonga or say to PNG or Fiji, come on guys, pick up. Yeah? You are in, in red zone right now. Everyone knew what's happening, but everybody's keeping quiet. But it's also important that we also recognize that it's even, more, it's even more crazier when we live in a small community where you know everybody else and you know who is corrupted, yeah? but you're not saying anything. Why? Because you're all related. The public finance management project that we do with the UNDP, with the fund from EU, the only, the only objective of that is to simplify budget process because it has been built in a way that, you know, economists and financial people felt like that they are the only people that should have the information because they learn how to do that. So we work with them to simplify the budget, encourage participation of civil society and citizens, and make submissions. Yeah? You may be surprised because you take that for granted here in New Zealand. But a lot of our com com uh, countries in the Pacific, they don't make that a, sim uh, a compulsory process to call for public submissions on the budget. So we made that happen. And it's amazing because it's allow us to have data in terms of what the budget allocation is. But it makes it even easier for community to use their knowledge and present it and say, okay, where's my MP? This is what's coming out from this set of information. Before, they couldn't even start a sentence because they start arguing and calling each other that your uncle has stolen the church money from yeah, 100 years ago is to remember. Because we need to look at the different approaches. And it's one of our, yeah, one of our component of our work. Find a way that the approach is important. So that it's not confrontational. 
because if you push it too hard, they'll close the door at you. Yeah? But then at the same time, how do you deal with that? When the person that you're going to take to court is sitting beside you at church on Sunday, <laughs> or it went to school together with your father. Yeah? So we have to look at that, and, and this approach has worked in terms of how do we see addressing the, the corruptions from a information empowerment approach. As Professor said this morning, families are difficult. <laughs> it's difficult when, you know, when everyone's family. Um, but no, that's very interesting. I mean, to summarize that though, what, what would you say are the forces that are contributing to the narrowing of civic space? Like, why is this happening? You talked about corporate interests earlier in the deep sea mining example. Why, why is this happening? Well, definitely there are personal interests uh, associated with that. But I, I suppose just because we have different opinion about things shouldn't, shouldn't stop us from, from talking to each other. Yeah, and shouldn't be looking at, at shutting down a group of people because they are insisting on certain things. It's alarming in our Pacific because we started to see government trying to legislate CSO policies to, you know, to, to influence how, how we do our work. Vanuatu is already starting, Solomon Islands, Kiribati now, we have heard that they are doing the same thing. As the professor said, Mangisi, Mangidu, it's often true. One country will come up with a policy. Everybody else said, oh, okay, let's organize this uh, sector because they don't do anything else but complaining. But there is, uh, there is the work around the development effectiveness. And New Zealand and Australia are quite uh, involved in the OECD DEC uh, work that speaks to how we should organize civil society in a way that as, as I said earlier, development effectiveness. So you can still have a policy that can guide organizing civil society in a way, but build around what are their contribution to development, rather than trying to control them. We've got 10 minutes before we invite our other two panelists up on the stage, and there's a couple of other questions I wanted to ask, but before we move off the topic of civic space, I do want to give the audience a chance to ask Siala any questions on this really important topic. Are, are there, I can see one hand. How many questions do we have on civic space? Is it just the one? Maybe one over here, okay. We can take one here as well. Okay, three questions on civic space. We'll take all three and then I'll get you to answer them together. Um, over this side. We'll, we'll all three first. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I was just curious. You mentioned about a Korean document that you use, Busan 2011. You're a Pacific organization, NGO. So why are we using a Korean document? Was held there. Why can't we modify it to suit us, then someone up in Asia? Thank you. Do you want to answer that one quickly? Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, the way that those of you that have, that have been following, there was uh, Accra, Accra, Paris, 
development, development cooperation yeah, has been traveling like that. This is the last one where it was uh, held in Busan 2011. In the Pacific, we have our own consultation that happened in Fiji, and we make the contribution to, to, the, to the outcome. So it was a high-level meeting, just like any other high-level meeting that is happening that you know, some of our countries have our own process of making submissions, or our leaders took it with them. Uh, and, and so this is the outcome statement of that meeting which the Pacific attended and they put their hand nicely and said, yes, we are gonna apply it to our civil society. Uh, but this is the thing. For those of us that are working in the civil society in the Pacific, we know that we need, that there are some good outcome statement that came out from some of our leaders' meeting. But if we are not claiming that, it's not gonna be useful to any of us. Because they will just hide it. All right, thank you for that. We'll take the other two questions together. So, yes, go ahead. I'm Alo Siale for your presentation. I just wanted to ask a question on civic space, but within the regional architecture, and you mentioned that there are two primary functions of Piango, the political voice and implementation. But in terms of the political voice, within the 2050 strategy context, where would you like to see civil society situated within the regional architecture where its political voice can be more influential. Yeah, we'll just take that other question as well. Yeah. Um, kia ora. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm, I'm very interested in your um, thoughts on voice agency in action. Um, and you talked about this sort of this last minute inclusion of um, civil society actors into decision making. And I'm just interested in your idea of how to, um, you know, like through the members, through the organisations, really amplify the voices of those civil society actors sort of across across the region with such a diverse Pacific um, and how to um, sort of amplify, especially with the young people, um, from um, getting those voices in, out, and towards action. Okay. Um, maybe I could start with the... Yep. The first question, the, the EU had put resources into the Pacific Islands Forum to support engaging of civil society. So every, every year we would come together and have a regional CSO forum uh, convened by the forum itself. Uh, and then we have a selection process and then another selection process who is going to be speaking to the leaders. So we also have a CSO dialogue that are set for the uh, Forum Economic Ministers meeting uh, and also with the leaders meeting. It started from 2015. But as, as, we, as we have seen the changes in the organizations, the, that, that space is starting to be shrinking because we'll be advised about two or three weeks before that they set the time. Yeah, there's no schedule where we said, oh, it's always in March or it's also always in June. The, the timeline is not as secured. Uh, and so we would be like running around like crazy trying to make sure that we cancel whatever we have uh, uh, scheduled to participate. And, and so that's, that's that engagement at the regional level is still there, but we still have to find time to be participating. At the, at, the, at, the, at the global level, it is much more organized. 
yeah? because of the UN, UN process. Uh, some of you may be aware of the NGO major groups. Yeah? It has a different stream on uh, women, youth, and, and the, the time for their meeting is, is set. So that's the kind of, uh, of uh, idea that we had for, uh, for Pacific, like a, a, a review of the regional architecture. And, and the person who asked the questions uh, has been in that uh, organization. Maybe that's why they were not uh, including civil society because of him. Eh? <laughs> but, but that has been an ongoing process. He, he usually, uh, part of the conversation where we kept on pushing for the forum to recognize that when we talk about regional architecture, it's an accountability mechanism. Yeah? It's not just us going there, but for us to make sure that who is going there would have to come back and report back. Because we have seen that happen. Our leaders just go, put their hands up, you know, vote for something, then they come back, nobody knows what happened after. Yeah? So the, the architecture is actually something that we know who is going, and then civil society can keep on monitoring what has been the outcome of this. Why is it that the issue that they take is not being discussed nationally? Those kind of, uh, of conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah? and, the, and the questions around the voices of civil society. It, it's a tricky question because you know, every time you talk to the donors or development partners, they keep on saying, how do you identify issue? You know, it's like that you went to sleep and woke up and dream about the issue. Some of the issues has been around forever, and they are not going to go away very soon. Yeah? So do we need to continue identifying issue, or do we have to be clear about the different main pathway of how the issues are coming through? For example, our young people, they like to work in a, a social movement. They like to put up their work on social media. They want to you know, engage in all online conversation. But they don't want to come and sit with our leaders and have a conversation one-to-one. -one. And we often find that there's a disconnect when they take their, their voices, particularly on climate change, from the region to the global level because our, our government still want to see submission on paper. And they want to see people that are like Alfred than them. They know each other. Yeah. That personal relationships still work up to now, believe it or not. Yeah. So for organization like Piango, that we had built that kind of relationship with, with our government, how do we make sure that we bring the voices of our young people who just love to do it online and, and put it through our own system? and make them feel comfortable. Yeah? And this is where some of our, our, the, the mismatch, because some of our civil society don't want to go and sit there in the room to have dialogue with the leaders, because the leaders often told us off. They said, oh, civil society was just like another opposition party. That's the Samoan former PM. <laughs> and so they don't like to be sit in the room and face that kind of conversation but they want to see policy change. Yeah? So how do, we, how do we connect social movement to organization like Piango and SID and ECFID 
that we value building relationship. Maybe we may not like MFET too much, say, but they have the money, so we keep on being nice to them and yeah, nature, that kind of relationship. It's, 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 it's relationship building. But where do we find the, the connections? Particularly so we don't lose our young people. Because they are doing quite well in amplifying voices of young people at the global level on social media. Yeah. Well, thank you, Siale. I'm going to invite our other two panelists up on stage in a moment. But can we give Siale a big round of applause? Thank you. I don't know about you, but I found that a really insightful and practical look at how we can support civil society.